1 Timothy 5, uh, verses 1 and 2, and says this. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, and all purity. Amen. Uh, last week we talked about, um, as we're going through this series in 1 Timothy, we talked about the importance of really feeding on the Word instead of the filth that is around us. Uh, eating, eating meat instead of cotton candy. <laughs> it's kind of the analogy that we use, the metaphor that we used. And today, um, I, I, I want to I kind of come alongside that statement uh, and make another statement. And here's this statement. It's possible to be doctrinally sound and culturally or relationally unfaithful to the Gospel. It's possible to know the right things, but yet perpetuate the wrong culture. Let me explain. I'm going to give a few uh, polarizing examples, um, but, I, but I'm convinced that it never starts out this way. Uh, Westboro Baptist Church is a church that all of you know of. They are a Reformed Baptist church. They are not known for that. They hold a lot of the same theology that we do about our salvation, that God is sovereign in it, that He comes down and He saves sinners, yet they live it out in a completely different way than we would ever want to live it out in Lawrenceville. Uh, the, um, th- there's a horrifying picture um, that, that, that comes up uh, often, uh, and it is of this organization called the Ku Klux, Ku Klux Klan. And there's this picture of them uh, in front of a church, in, in the front of a church, and over, over their, you know, them in their robes, it says, Jesus saves. And every time I, I see that picture, I just get emotional. Because that's not the Jesus that I know. That's not the Jesus. That's not the gospel that I've been called to proclaim. Or we can take it back even further. How about the crusade? Crusades, commissioned by the Pope at the time to go out and uh, and to act violently to secure indulgences for themselves and to reclaim things that belong to the church. We could go on and on with examples. But the point is, is that gospel word and gospel deed, gospel doctrine and gospel culture are supposed to go together. And the moment that we start separating those is the moments that we get in trouble. All of these examples that I've shared with you are examples of, um, <clears throat> of ministry done in the name of Jesus without the heart of Jesus. And where we're going today in 1 Timothy really talks about having the heart of Jesus uh, with one another. And if we're honest with ourselves, all of us land more heavily either on doc, or gospel doctrine or gospel culture. You know, some of us uh, land and resonate more with definitions and standards that are in the Bible. Others of us land and focus more on relationship and the fruit that those relationships produce and what we feel. But uh, what we see in the Bible is that both were incredibly important to Jesus. In fact, in John chapter 1, verse 14, it says that Jesus was full of truth and full of grace. Full of grace and truth. So there was right doctrine and there was a right culture that surrounded the doctrine that Jesus came to perpetuate in the culture. James K.A. Smith says it like this, Discipleship and spiritual formation are less about erecting an edifice of knowledge than they are a matter of developing a Christian know-how that intuitively 
understands the world in light of the gospel. What's that mean? It, need, it means that we need more than just a Christian worldview to see the gospel advanced in Lawrenceville. We need, we need more than just doctrine. And before you think I'm a heretic, we need the fruit of doctrine. The fruit that we feel and perpetuate and see and know and people notice the fruit that we bear because we have the right doctrine in Jesus. We need a gospel culture is what we need. And our community needs it in us desperately. I think about Jesus in His day. And, and there was this tendency, even in Jesus' day, through the religious leaders to separate gospel doctrine and gospel culture. Think about the woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8. We don't have time to go all the way into it today, but the skinny of the story is this. There was a woman that was caught in adultery. And the Pharisees brought the woman before Jesus. And they try to put Jesus in a trap. And they say, the law tells us to stone her, Jesus. What do you say? So they're trying to push an agenda forward. Do you, do you see what they're doing there? They have the law. They have the truth. But they don't have the culture that the, that the truth produces. And they even twisted the truth because, because the law did not say that, that they should stone the woman. The law said that they should stone both the woman and the man. So they used what they could of the truth to promote their agenda. And what does Jesus do? He says, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. And He begins to write down something in the sand. No one knows what He's writing. And one by one, now, keep in mind, the woman is probably stark naked, absolutely humiliated. And Jesus comes and accompanies her and provides her grace. And, 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 and just kind of has within Him this culture of grace that He wants to show. And one by one, the, the Pharisees and the religious leaders, they peel away from the scene. And two, it's just Jesus... In her, and uh, he asked, "Has no one condemned you?" He says, "Neither do I go and sin no more." So, was Jesus excusing her sin? I don't think so. He was forgiving her sin. He was revealing the arrogant motives of those who accused her. And what we we see about gospel culture is this, is that it deals with sin, but it perpetuates a radical culture of grace that we feel. Ray Ortland, uh, in, his, in his little book called The Gospel, <laughs> defines gospel culture like this, and we're going to get into it. He says this, and don't miss this, a gospel culture is the shared experience of grace for the undeserving. Let me say that again. A gospel culture is the shared experience of grace for the undeserving. To, to, for us to experience this as a church, we have to have a common need together. We have to have a common need together. The Gospel, friends, will bind us more tightly together than any righteous deed that we could ever do. And we have to acknowledge, the Gospel makes us acknowledge this, no matter what we've accomplished in life, we're no better than anyone else. No matter what you've accomplished, Good or bad, 
You're no better than anyone else. And that's what the gospel does in us as a church, is it levels the playing field. And what the gospel also does is it restores us to a right relationship with God that's better than anything we could ever accomplish on our own. And we get to experience that together as we trust in Jesus. So this week, we need to look at how the words of Jesus penetrate our relationships. How the doctrine of Jesus passed down to us cultivates a culture of the gospel. i got two points for us, and, and here they are. The first one is this. We belong to God as children. For us to understand what's going on in 1 Timothy 5, 1 and 2, to be able to call each other brothers and sisters, and to live in that type of fellowship, we got to understand who our Father is in heaven. This week I came to this, really this startle, startling reality about um, this, this text. And, and as we look at this text, we notice that really, if we were to frame it up and describe it as, as being about something, 1 Timothy 5, 1 and 2, we would say, this is about discipleship. Would we not? We'd say, this is about discipleship. This is about how we live together as God's family. This is about how we treat one another. And the Scriptures are very specific on how we posture ourselves toward each other. They're specific on that. So I began to look through the Scriptures, particularly in the epistles. Paul wrote 13 letters in the New Testament. And in the New Testament, did you know that the word disciple is never found in it? That's wild, right? I mean, Jesus talks so much about discipleship. Why is the word disciple never found in the, the epistles, the letters? Is it because Paul doesn't believe in discipleship? I don't think so. I think Paul is getting at what the fruit of discipleship is. I think this familial language that he uses gives us some, even a more accurate description of what discipleship actually is, that we're called to live together as the family of God. They get to the deeper root of what discipleship is. So as we look at this, we've got to look at what God's design is for us, which is to live as the family of God. And, and I want to I offer a, a brief a caveat to this. Some of you have been at New City Church for a long time, and when you come in to the doors of, of Richards Middle School to worship with us, or you come into the doors of a missional community or discipleship group, um, it ought to feel like family. That, I mean, our vision is that we would live together as the family of God together in Lawrenceville and beyond and, and proclaim and demonstrate the gospel to one another. If that has not been your situation, there's one of two problems here. One is either we're not doing what God's called us to do, which may be the case in some situations. The other is maybe you're not opening yourself up to experience the family of God. Either way, there's an issue there. But for us to faithfully live as the, as, as the church, we have to get to the, the root of what it means to live as the family of God. Because we can never have these tight-knit relationships that Jesus begs of us to experience in His kingdom without knowing who our Father in heaven is. Matthew chapter 6, 7-13. through 13, Very familiar text to us. Most of you probably have this memorized, or maybe many of you do. I'm going to read it for us. This is, this is the prayer that Jesus teaches His disciples to pray. It's called the Lord's Prayer, but I think it's actually better described as the disciples' prayer. Because He's teaching them how to pray. I want you to 
notice as we read this how the prayer starts. How it starts. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Instead, pray like this. First words. Our Father in Heaven. Our Father in Heaven. Our Father in Heaven. Hallowed be Your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in Heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. Why do we begin the prayer with our Father? What did Jesus know about us and our need, our true need? Because if we're honest, a lot of times when we, when we say, hey, Father God, when we enter into prayer, it's really just a form kind of thing for us. But I think Jesus meant it as something so much deeper. Because everything in our lives hinges on who our Father in Heaven is or is not. Does it not? Everything hinges on it. If God is not our Father through the work of Jesus Christ reconciling us to Him, then we're in deep trouble. <laughs> Everything hinges on the fact that God is our Father. And we can only live as the family of God, as 1 Timothy 5 teaches us to live, if we have the same Dad. If we have the same Spirit that lives inside of us through the work of Jesus. We can only live as family that way. Now, you know, I come from a blended family. Many of you in this room come from a blended family too. Uh, my family's quite broken. Um, and, and I'm so thankful that, that my narrative and my family life doesn't define me forever. But we would be foolish to say that it doesn't affect us, wouldn't we? As we look at God as our Father, you and I have preconceived notions of what a father is or is not. And so when we come to Him, we project onto Him what our experiences have been because that is what we know. When we come to the Scriptures, we see what every father was made to be, but all of them fell short. A Father in Heaven who's gracious and merciful and abounding in steadfast love, not slow to anger, but patient with us all. Extending grace and mercy. Noticing our pain. Seeing the orphan, the widow that we'll talk about next week. Seeing all of these things in the family and having great care and concern for all of us. That's the Father that we see. Yet, sometimes we live as spiritual orphans even though we're supposed to be a part of the family of God because we deny the power of godliness that the Scriptures talk about by stiff-arming the love of God and thinking we can handle it on our own. If we do not feel the love of God and know the love of God in our being, how can we live as the children of God? How can we live as the family of God if that is not real to us? And I want you to test this, friends. The love of God is so real that you can't wear it out. You can't out it. You can't outrun it. He's always there extending more for us. Listen, let the, let the words of Romans 8, 14-17 wash over you. 
And if there's any doubt in your heart today, if God is your Father and He loves you, then let this be gospel to you this morning. Romans 8, 14-17. For all who are led by the Spirit of God... Okay, let's stop there. For all who call upon the name of Jesus receive the Spirit of God. For all who repent and confess receive the Spirit of God. So if that's you, you've received the Spirit of God. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons and daughters of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry out. We have that type of relationship now that we can cry out to Him. Abba, Father. We can demand the relationship that He's promised us. We can enter into it boldly because He's with us. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, oh yeah, then heirs. And if heirs, fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. Did you see what the work of the Spirit is to do in our hearts? It's to convince us, to bear witness with our spirit that we are sons of God because there's this battle within each and every one of us. And if you look earlier in, in the book of, in the chapter of Romans 8, you'll see that there's this battle and it's between the flesh and the spirit. And your flesh wants to convince you that you're not a son or a daughter of God. And many of us believe it every single day. But the spirit, oh, the spirit, he's come to convince you that you belong to God. That Jesus has made you a co-heir in His kingdom. And there's nothing you can do to wear that out. He goes on in Romans 8 to say, neither height nor depth nor breadth nor width can separate us from the love of God. Indeed, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Nothing can separate that relationship. There's never going to be a divorce because of the work of Jesus. When When He raised from the dead, He secured the promise for us. We don't have to protect ourselves like spiritual street fighters from being exposed before our Father in Heaven. This is really good news. A few weeks ago, I'm getting intense. A few weeks ago, uh, my oldest son came down into the room. If you notice, like young pastors that have kids, I mean, all of our stories revolve around sleep or lack of sleep, it seems like, right? Son comes down to my room in the middle of the night. Daddy, I want to sleep in your room. I'm like, dude, you got a bunk bed upstairs? Go get in that thing. Let me help you. So I get out of bed, walk him up the stairs, uh, tuck him in. And he says, no, but daddy, I want to sleep in your room tonight. I said, I know, but you have a bed. And I start debating with him and trying to use reason. And it's 3 a.m. And it's not going anywhere. And then he drops the the card on me. Let's, Let's the hammer fall. He says, but daddy. I want to be close to you. Oh. You see, my son, I told him, I said, okay, you want to come downstairs? Fine, then you're sleeping on the floor. Now get into my bed. You're sleeping on the floor. And he said, oh, that's fine, Dad. That's fine. That's fine. And here's the reality. Here's the reality. He would rather sleep on the floor close to Dad than in the comfort of his own bed because he's close to Dad. The bottom line is this, friends, is that when we're close to Dad, we feel safe, don't we? 
The times that we reject the love of God and we try to walk in the flesh and fall back into that spirit of slavery are the times that we feel God is distant. And so we don't let ourselves feel love and cling to truth in those moments because we're protecting ourselves. Because we know what it means to be exposed. We've been hurt in those moments before. And some of us have never opened ourselves up to be close to Dad. We've never done that before. We've never let Him love us in the weak vulnerability that we all experience every single day. We only let Him love us in the moments when we're presentable and have something to offer. Guys, through the Spirit, Dad is always in the room with us. He's always in the room bearing witness to our spirit that we are children of God and we belong to Him. Do you live like this? Do you live like God is always in the room with you? That He is the King of your heart? That His Spirit is bearing witness with your spirit, convincing you that you belong to God? Because we have to get that to get what the church is. To experience the fullness of God's kingdom as much as we can on earth, which is to live as the family of God together. We have to get who our Father is. Secondly, we're actually going to get into 1 Timothy now. 1 Timothy 5, 1 and 2. Let me read it for us. Now, it's, it's in my Bible somewhere. It's on the screen too, but I like the Bible. 1 Timothy 5, 1 and 2. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers. Older women as mothers. Younger women as sisters in all purity. Now you look at those two verses and you're like, okay, yeah, whatever. There is a lot in these two verses that we need to unpack. So Paul says uh, that, our, that our relationship uh, with God is how we understand how to relate to one another. Because as the fall has impacted each of us, we have learned lots of bad traits on how to relate to one another and how to treat one another. And we need the blood of Jesus to wash over our hearts and our lives so that we can properly relate to the rest of God's children, His image bearers in the world. And the Scriptures teach us how to do that. We're not cohabitants of creation. You don't just come in here on a Sunday morning, get your fix, and head out. We're family. You know what's going to happen if I try to do that at my grandma's house? Go in and get Sunday lunch and peace out? She ain't going to be happy. As the family of God, we don't do that either. We are connected. And this is what God desperately wants us to experience. Jesus even takes it a step further. Somebody says, you know, who are my... Somehow a conversation comes up about who his brothers and sisters are. And he says, it's those that do the will of my Father. They're closer to him than his blood relatives. So if we really want to get down to brass tacks here, the church ought to feel closer to you than, than a lot of your family does. And for some of you, you experience that. And I'm not saying that because it's, you know, something bad is going on with your family. I'm just saying that that's how strong the Spirit of God is to bring us together and unite us. And Paul tells Timothy, hey, tell, tell the young guys not to rebuke, and that word means to strike at the older men. And this, the context of this, you've got to remember, is, is Paul, an older pastor, and his disciple Timothy, he's writing a letter to him to be able to pastor the, the multitude of churches in the city of Ephesus. You see, Timothy's going to have to engage in helping older men that are older than him walk in the love of Jesus and live out the life of Christ. And he's going to have to engage with, with younger men 
and, and older women and, and younger women. And he says there's a way to do this and there's a way not to do this. And I would say that the context of this really helps all of us in how we relate to everyone. And so we can learn from it. It's not just for a pastor. He says don't rebuke or strike at uh, an older man. That's not how you would treat your dad, is it? That's not how you would treat your dad. Instead, the Bible, especially in the Ten Commandments, says that we're supposed to honor our father and our mother. Mother. So I would say that, that honor really describes the relationship that he's going after here. He says, you know, but don't let them just get away with sin. Just because they're old, you just let them walk away. That wouldn't be a good shepherd of you to do that. I know it's going to be hard and you're timid and, and, and you're, you're, you're guessing whether you've got to do this or not. Remember back from 1 Timothy 4. He's got to fan into flame the gift that God's put in him to, to exercise the gift, to not neglect it. And so that's going to mean you've got to engage with older men. Don't let them just get away with sin, but, but love them. Come alongside them. And, and the word for encourage there is this beautiful word. Sometimes the English language just doesn't do us any justice in describing what the Scriptures are saying. The word for encourage is this word paraclete. Now the word paraclete is the same root word where we get the word Holy Spirit from. And it means to come alongside of. See, that's a different posture, isn't it? That God would call us to come alongside people to encourage them in the Gospel instead of striking at them with what we know to be true and we don't see it in their life. To come alongside them. He said, hey, Timothy, if something's going to be offensive, let the Gospel be offensive. It's offensive enough on its own. But you, you be a, you be a gentle shepherd. And he says, with younger men, pastor them like brothers. So that means sometimes with your brother, you got to get real, right? you got to get real with him. But you still come alongside of him. And you're gentle with him. And you pastor him in that way. Older women, we, we approach like an adult son approaches his mom. With deep humility, with searching our own heart before we're ever saying anything else about someone else. And wisdom. With younger women, Timothy, treat the young ladies and young married ladies with all purity. Keep yourself far above reproach. And if there's ever been a relationship that's taken a pastor out faster, it's that one. Right? We've all heard stories or been in churches where that's happened. And I, I teach this to you with a little bit of fear and trepidation because I know the power of the enemy. When I was a youth pastor, I remember uh, getting scolded for the caution that I took with young ladies. Um, because the way that the young ladies received it in the church is that I didn't care about them as, as much. And so I would always have you know, someone else in the room with me. I wouldn't do private meetings. I'd always let my wife know when one of those meetings was going on, even when I had someone else in the room with me. And since the day that Megan and I have gotten married, um, and, and, and mind you, we came from a church uh, with a pastor that was having an affair while he was giving us premarital counseling. Okay, so that's real to us. We get that. It's part of our narrative. And God has been so gracious in those experiences. But guys, we have to be careful there. God's grace is, is bigger than those situations. He covers those situations, but there's much harm done to the flock and to the family. In those, and so he instructs him 
to walk with purity, to think through those things. And so if you are husband or wife or plan to be one one day, I would encourage you to have these types of conversation with your spouse. To think through those situations. To be proactive in those. And uh, I'm so thankful for a God that is loving and kind to us. Even though some of us have, have we've experienced that pain. That's not our narrative anymore, but we can be proactive in how we respond to one another. He says, younger folks, basically be humble and teachable. Older folks, be humble and teacher, teachable. And there, There's something that we gain as a church by being an intergenerational church. Did you hear about the relationships that we are supposed to engage with, with older men and older women and younger men and younger women? That's a part of the life cycle of the church. That's how we ought to be behaving. It shouldn't just be, oh, there's the, there's the young folks' church over there. There's the older folks' church over there. It should be, we should be engaging to one another. And, and I just think about, uh, I think about our church and just how, how diverse even, even our own church is. I mean, we've got, we've got folks from, you know, Colombia, Bosnia, China, Korea, Kentucky, and y'all let me be a part of it. It's beautiful. Lots more places. It's a diverse community. And the Holy Spirit empowers us to relate rightly to one another. We are to come alongside one another. That's what the Gospel empowers us to do. We don't have anything to prove. But if the, if the Spirit lives in each one of us, and He's bearing witness with us to who our Father is and who our brothers and sisters are, do you know what happens when you come alongside one another? The Spirit convicts, convinces us to walk in repentance. And so when we engage with one another, we can treat each other kindly and gently. And that's what it looks like to begin to develop a culture of grace in our church. When we treat each other as image bearers of God, redeemed by the Father, and sent to love one another and live in community as the family of God. There's this beautiful portrait of this in the Bible. Uh, it's, it's between these two brothers, Jacob and Esau. Now, <clears throat> Jacob and Esau really made some bonehead plays, didn't they? I mean, one brother sold his birthright out for a bowl of stew. That happened. That's there. Now, we, I, now we, got all our, we, we have our bowls of stew too, okay? We got them. But then the other brother, I mean, he put fake hair on his arms to trick his brother to get the birthright. I mean, it's, there's some deception going on there. And we got it in our family too, but it's there. So, so Jacob runs away because he's afraid of Esau because Esau, Esau's a bad dude, okay? <laughs> he's afraid of Esau. Years later, I'm summarizing the story, God shows unmerited favor to Jacob. And in Genesis 32, we see the story where Jacob wrestles with God. And God meets him, and he's converted, and he becomes a follower of the one true God, the God of Israel. And God is wrestling with Jacob in Genesis 32. And Jacob says, God, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. I want to feel your love, your power, and your favor on my life. And he says, okay, but there's going to be consequences to that. He touches his hip. He walks with a limp probably for the rest of his life. Changes his name to Israel. So, 
the redeemed Jacob now needs to go make things right with all the family drama. And so, he heads back to where Esau is, and he's, he's sending people and you know, peace offerings and, and, and livestock and everything in front of him so that Esau can receive these gifts so that it might assuage him not to kill Jacob, right? He's like, let me bribe you a little bit. But when he meets Esau, something completely different happens. Listen to this. Genesis 33, starting verse 4. But Esau runs to him. And he embraces him. And he fell on his neck and he, he kissed him. And they wept. This is what grace does to a family. Is it reunites even the deepest wounds. This is a culture of grace where you experience God's unmerited favor together. And we can experience it individually. But it's so much sweeter when we experience it together. And he goes on to say, Jacob said, I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. And this is what grabs me right here. For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God. And you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you. Because God has dealt graciously with me, and because I have enough. Jacob says, Esau, I've seen your face, and the grace and the mercy and the unmerited favor that you have shown me is like seeing the face of God. Church, through the, the power of the Spirit, we have that kind of influence with those people around us. Those people we rub shoulders with every day. That they could see and taste the face of God because we are redeemed in His sight and we have nothing to prove. Only to see the love of God propelled in our relationships. I want to land the plane on how we get the Spirit to live in us in this way as a church. Many of you uh, have had high school biology before. And do you remember the, uh, the, 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 the lab where you go around and you and you swab different things in the room, and you put them in a culture, and you see what grows. Do you guys remember that? Have you ever had that experience in biology class? Well, if you haven't, basically, there's a culture, and you go, and you, you kind of see what different bacterias and things are growing in the room. You know, the, the toilet seat, the door handle, which is grosser, by the way. Um, <laughs> uh, the pencil, you know, the desk, the floor, all of those types of things. You're trying to see what type of bacteria is all around you. You can't even see it. What types of things are growing right before your eyes and you can't see them? Well, I wonder if, we were, if New City Church were to be the culture. And we were to go around and we were to swab you know, your family at home, which is the smallest unit of the church, by the way. The missional community that you're a part of. Your attitude at work, your business endeavors, your discipleship group how we respond to people in corporate worship. If we were to go around and swab all of those things and put them in the culture, what would grow in the culture of New City Church? Would it be bitterness and pride and anger and self-righteousness? Or would it be grace, peace, love, joy, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, 
and self-control? What would grow in the culture of New City Church? Because we want to see a gospel culture grow in New City. It's what we desperately want to see. Lawrenceville doesn't need another self-righteous church that's about themselves. They need Jesus. And God has chosen in His providence to make that happen through the way that we relate to Him and to one another. So how do we keep this culture in our family? Let these phrases from the Scripture wash over you. And then I'll close this in prayer. We're to outdo one another in showing honor. Romans 12.10, honor one another. We're to rejoice in one another. Psalm 16.3 As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones. Get this. In whom is all my delight. Do we delight in one another that way? Do we trust one another? 1 Corinthians 4.5 Do not pronounce judgment before the time. We trust one another. We expect the best in one another. We talk to one another. Romans 18.15 But if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. We speak to one another face to face because that's the power that we have in Christ. We accept one another. Romans 15.7 says, Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. We serve one another. As Galatians 5.13 says, For you were called to freedom, brothers, Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, serve one another. We act in humility to one another. And we bear with one another in love. You know? Because we're all in in process. None of us are finished. And Jesus bears with us. And so, because God is our Father and Jesus is our elder brother, we bear with one another. That's how the culture of grace permeates. New City Church. Let's pray. Father, um, there are those in this room today, uh, probably close to all of us, that really need to hear uh, that, that grace is really about receiving unmerited favor corporately. That that's what a culture of grace is. And so, Father, like, Lord, I pray that You'd be faithful Uh, to keep us from the schemes of the enemy as You teach us to pray. And those subtle schemes that that make a a culture completely shift into something heretical, that they'd be far from us. That we would take the principle from the Sermon on the Mount to, to, to first look at the plank in our own eye before we try to adjust the speck in someone else's. God, give us a culture of grace. This is going to have to be a supernatural work, Father. Lord, I pray that our church, New City Church, and the relationships that are represented across Atlanta and the world would only be able to be described by the power of Your Spirit working mightily in us. And so, Father, we ask and we pray for You to do that work in us today. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.